You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, welcome everybody. I'm the canon for liturgy and worship, so I like to talk about liturgy stuff, but hopefully connect it to gospel stuff. Um, And that's what I want to do today. I want to talk about these short prayers called the Collect. So let me pray before we talk about prayers. (laughs) Dear Lord, we give you thanks for this good day. We're grateful to be among your people, um, gathered together as the spiritual house and royal priesthood. And all of us who are priests under our great high priest, Jesus, we praise you, Jesus. We ask that you would constantly orient our lives more and more around who you are and what you've done so that when the race is complete, we can say, not I, but Christ who lives within me. Amen. All right, I want to unpack a little bit about these prayers called the Collects. And you may not, some of you may know what they're called if you're familiar with Anglican speak or prayer book speak, but some of you may not. So the Collects are the prayers in our liturgy that sound like this, and they kind of repeat themselves. And even if you don't know the word, you might recognize the sort of flow of these prayers. Here's one that we often pray here. It's called the Collect for Peace. O God, who art the author of peace, I love this art the author of peace and lover of concord, in knowledge of whom standeth our eternal life, and this one's awesome, whose service is perfect freedom. Defend us, thy humble servants, in all, thy, in all assaults of our enemies, that we, surely trusting in thy defense, may not fear the power of any adversaries through the might of Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is another one. So you kind of have that flow in your head. Here's another one that's another great one. Collect for grace, O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Almighty and Everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that we, being ordered by thy governance, may do always what is righteous in thy sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So these collects have been a part of worshiping with the Christian church for well over a millennia. Um, They're ancient. They're part of liturgy that's kind of always been around. They've taken a certain form. And I want to ask and unpack a little bit about what makes them so powerful, particularly in our prayer book tradition. And part of that is that uh, the architect of the prayer book, Thomas Cranmer, a reformer in the 16th century, didn't just translate these prayers from Latin to English. But as we will see, he did some theological and verbal tweaking. And what I want to do is we're eventually going to get to the point of watching Cranmer take an old prayer. We're going to look at the old prayer, the way it was originally formed, and then the way he did it. And I don't want to do this just as some fun historical technical exercise. I want to do this as a means of maybe learning from him what it's like to be a Christian that prays more according to the gospel and prays more according to finding oneself in Jesus. But before we get there, a little bit of history. Um, We find these prayers cropping up in early Christian liturgies. They're just called oratio, or prayers, but eventually came to be called collecta, or collex, which means in Latin, gathering together, kind of duh, because it carries a little bit of the sense in English, doesn't it? The word carries two senses. The first sense is oftentimes these prayers were the wrap-up prayers, for a string of prayers or a more lengthy set of prayers. In a sense, they collected or gathered up the prayers into a nice buttoned up bundle, kind of like the prayer version of a summary or conclusion. 
You'd often find in the early liturgies that this would be the end of a series of prayers. You'd kind of land on a collect, like a, a punctuation mark of prayer or something like that. But the idea of collect was also uh, that as the minister was praying, the prayers and the hearts of the entire congregation was being gathered into that prayer. In other words, that even if just the minister's voice was heard, the prayer was still a corporate act because it was collecting the prayers of everybody. And that's a challenge for those of us that want to check out during the prayers when, say, someone like me is leading them and, and speaking them, who aren't necessarily actively participating with your mouths in the liturgy. It takes work and effort and willingness of heart to engage your whole self, to amen the prayers that are being prayed by the minister in your heart or out loud like it was today in, in our service. Um, the collects remind us that when we gather for worship on Sundays, we're praying common prayers for all of us. Do you realize that, that the reason our book of common prayer is called the book of common prayer was that there was a sense in which whatever the liturgy was before the Reformation, those who architected it for us meant for it to be our prayer book, not just the prayers of the minister up front, not a performance of the choir or the band or anybody else, but a collective gathering for common prayer among us all. Second, a bit of historical context for you. The Collects have a very early history in liturgical development. So the prayer book that we have now is the the gathering together of lots of liturgies that evolved over various times and places, especially across Europe, East and West. And so you can imagine during that evolution that certain things took place and changed. But all throughout that evolution, you have to go way back before you find what may be the origin of the collects or the time when you finally find liturgies that don't have them. Somehow, there emerged in Christian worship around the middle of the 5th century these short and formulaic prayers. The earliest ones we have come to us from the big word sacramentaries, basically liturgical books. So a sacramentary was a big book that a priest would use to help lead the liturgy. It was kind of like his prayer book that he would lead the people in. People didn't have their own prayer books. This was a you know, pre-printing press day and age, so a book was a commodity. And the priest would have a sacramentary that was kind of like their manual on how to lead the service. And there were many sacramentaries going around, but we find the earliest collects in these sacramentaries of three famous bishops of Rome. Bishop Leo, that's my cat. My cat's name is Leo. I didn't necessarily name him after that, but now that I think about the collects, I may just adopt that. Bishop Galasius and Gregory the Great. If you know your Western history, you know that the 5th century was a time of turmoil in the Roman Empire, right? Barbarians were attacking Rome, and law and order was under threat. So as one commentator put it, while Augustine was writing his great treatise on the city of God, the bishops of Rome were composing and compiling collects to sustain the Christians through troubled times. And a lot of our prayer book collects come from this era, and so they carry with them a lot of that fear of enemies and needing and calling for the protection of God. You notice that language that comes all the way back to kind of that very tangible fear of, oh my gosh, Rome is falling apart and we're being attacked from the outside, right? And so you've got all these beautiful prayers that help us understand the despair of the people of God back then. 
There's one other thing to note. If you know your church history, you'll recognize this period also as the time of the influence of Pelagius. Doesn't he just look like someone you don't want to be friends with kind of thing? The British monk whom Augustine took to task for abandoning the gospel of grace. Pelagius, fed up with a lukewarm, half-hearted Christianity, opted for a theology that would put people on the hook and that made people responsible for their own moral and faith development. Pelagius argued that we do have the will in and of ourselves to keep God's law and we should do so. And when Augustine went back to his Bible, he said, that's heresy. (laughs) So while Augustine fought Pelagius on the battlefield of theology, so they were writing books kind of against one another or against each other's propositions. While that was going on, the Roman bishop, those guys that I mentioned before, perhaps Galatius in particular, they fought that fight on the battlefield of worship services and common prayer. So the earliest collects in our current prayer books preserve dozens of them from this era and have a strong emphasis actually on the grace of God and the inability of humanity. That's why you get those collects sounding the way they do. They sound, quote, Protestant, but they're actually from way before Protestantism was a thing. When the church was trying to define its doctrine of salvation and it was wrestling with Pelagius, that's where these collects come from, interestingly enough. So it's a good place to start, right? It's interesting, therefore, that when the collects passed Cranmer's desk, when he was translating them from Latin into English so that everyone could have a common prayer in the liturgy, they didn't remain unchanged. We'll get there in a second. I want to talk about the structure of Collex, just so you can kind of get in the mind of it a little bit. Collex follow a, follow a th- predictable three to four part structure. First part is invoking God. The second part is petitioning God for some benefits. Third part is pleading Christ's mediation. And the fourth part is praising the Trinity. Now, if you have this structure in mind and start to listen to Collex being prayed during a worship service like this one, you'll start to see how those various things are constantly there. Usually, sometimes it's at least three or four of these elements. Almighty and merciful God, whose gift it cometh, that thy faithful people do unto thee true and laudable service. So that's the invocation. That's saying, the God whom we're addressing is this God. And then the second part is petitioning God. It usually begins with something like grant that, or give us, or some sort of verb that God is going to do. Grant, we beseech thee, that we may without offense Run to thy promises. And then the third part is pleading Christ's mediation through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc. And finally, often praising the Trinity who lives and reigns with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Over time, these collects became a part of the fabric of the Christian liturgy. You'd find three or four of them cropping up at various parts of the communion service, for instance. Probably the most well-known collect, the one that we hear every time we have the communion liturgy, is what's called the Collect for Purity, which we know is the, the opening prayer in the communion liturgy. And get this, before the Reformation, this was not a public prayer. In fact, the people of God never heard this prayer. This was a private prayer that the priest prayed in the sacristy or their preparatory space before coming out. And when Cranmer saw this, he said, this needs to be a prayer that introduces the whole service that everybody prays because he believed in the priesthood of all believers. So right at the get-go, we have this beautiful prayer. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts be open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, 
Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. In our era, we especially know collects as the seasonal prayers that rotate weekly in our communion and morning prayer slash daily office liturgies. So like you're going to hear these collects changing depending on the season, the church calendar year, and they take on the hue of that. So if you hear prayers that sound like this, they'll often take on the character of Epiphany or Lent or Christmas or uh, Pentecost or something else like that. That's why we have what's called a collect of the day. And that provides a little bit more emphasis toward that direction. So that's some of the, before we get to Cranmer's cool stuff that he did with these things, which would be the really fun part. Any questions about collects here or anything that I've said about this? This has been truly boring, Zach. So that's what I interpret that silence to mean. So that was all preliminary background to get uh, a simple and really practical idea of what these collects were. Uh, But now I want to ask, how can these collects teach us to pray faithfully? I want to let that question dangle and make one more historical point. When Thomas Cranmer sat down to put together the Book of Common Prayer, he had a lot of resources in front of them. He especially had several sacramentaries and breviaries, which are the the sort of book equivalent of the things that help priests lead the daily office or morning prayer and evening prayer and the other daily prayers. Everything was in Latin, but this is the crazy part, as I said. Cranmer didn't merely translate these prayers into eloquent, prayerful English. He redacted them. He edited them. And the question is, when we observe Cranmer at work, editing, did he have an agenda? Can we observe a pattern to his edits that betray or show us a conviction that he had? I believe the answer is yes. And I believe that Cranmer's conviction was largely singular. He was after one thing. And this is a little bit different. If you were to read a book on the history of the prayer book, and particularly the history of what Cranmer did, you often get these lists of what people say were Cranmer's driving objectives on why he edited or redacted the liturgy. In fact, that list is often re-described and re-summoned any time an Episcopalian body or an Anglican body wants to revise the prayer book. They'll go back to that list of five or six different things that were Cranmer's reasons for why he edited the way he did, and there will be an appeal that goes there. What's often missed is that there was actually one thing One criterion above those other things that was Cranmer's chief filter through which he shoved everything in the liturgy. And I believe that Cranmer's singular conviction, that filter was, in fact, nothing other than the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to do for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for you, lived for you, and gives that life to you, free of charge, totally by God's grace. So you read passages like Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What we're hearing is that when Paul describes the gospel, he makes huge distinctions, a distinctions that are kind of categorically separated. There is no reason for you, Christian, to boast because it's all the work of God, none the work of you. This is kind of, he's laying the, the, the sort of the rule book for how one articulates the good news. This good news is precisely good because it excludes you in the equation of saving yourself. So for the gospel to be the gospel, for the gospel to actually be good news, according to Paul in these kinds of passages where he's making these category distinctions, it has to be 100% God and 0% us. Can't you see why it has to be this kind of math for the good news to be good news? Imagine if it's even 99% God and 1% us. Some famous evangelists have said it that way. You know, God comes 99% of the way, but you've got to do your little part by receiving, coming. Why is that not good news? Because that gives me a 1% chance to blow it, right? There's a chance that my salvation isn't secure because that little bit even rests on me and not the Lord. So for the gospel to be the gospel according to the Apostle Paul and Jesus and not something else, it must make the kind of distinctions that are categorical and mutually exclusive. Just like the language of Paul, boasting is excluded. You can't boast a little bit, it's excluded. Not by works, but by faith. Totally separate, right? Saved by faith, not by works. Not by law, but by grace. Not I, but Christ. 100% God, 0% us. What I want to say to you is that Cranmer read Paul like that. He understood the gospel to be exclusive in nature for it to be good news. And therefore, he believed that to pray in faith, in other words, to pray faithfully, our prayers must do this kind of exclusionary work too. And he found that some of the collects weren't clear enough with those percentages. And so he went to work. Let's look at his work now. And as we do, let's keep this practical question before us. How can this teach me to pray more faithfully? Hey, and by the way, the devil hates what we're about to talk about. And the devil hates what we're talking about. So are you intrigued enough? Are you in the edge of your seat for this non-boring stuff? Let's look at prayers that Cranmer received and the way he changed them. All right. From the Galatian Sacramentary. Good prayer. Sunday before Easter is where it was originally assigned in the prayer book. Here's how it went. English translation of the Latin, kind of to parallel what Cranmer is about to do. Almighty and everlasting God, our Savior Jesus Christ took upon him our flesh and suffered death upon the cross that all mankind should follow the example of his humility. Grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also may merit the partaking of his resurrection through the same Lord. When it passed Cranmer's desk, this was the result. The kind of bolded, underlined parts are the changed parts, scratched out parts of the parts that he took out. Look at how Cranmer's understanding of the gospel is affecting the way he gives prayers for us to pray. Almighty and everlasting God, and he adds this part, which of thy tender love toward man has sent our Savior Jesus Christ to take upon him our flesh, and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. 
mercifully grant that we both follow the example of his patience and be made partakers of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. This Latin word over here, Mary Amor, created a big debate in the Reformation with Luther and Calvin and Cranmer and the others. They were concerned about the way that that robbed the gospel of its power, precisely because the idea of merit was that I contribute some percentage to my salvation. So you notice that anytime there was a sort of Latin Mary Amor reference, Cranmer's slicing and dicing that out of there. Why? Because he wants the gospel to be clear and he wants people to be able to pray in this way. One of the other techniques of prayer that Cranmer often uses is anything that has us doing something in the active voice, partaking his love, receiving. Cranmer often moves into the passive. Notice the partaking of his resurrection is be made partakers of his resurrection. It's called the divine passive where that work is being done to us and on us rather than us doing the work. You know, you, do you hear how even these slight grammatical tweaks help to make clear the good news and help us to pray more faithfully? Check out another one, the Collect for Purity. We've already read it. That was the original Collect, that we may perfectly love thee and meritoriously, worthily magnify thee. So Cranmer took out the word meritoriously, of course, the other thing he did, which was more of a doctrinal thing that may not at first be obvious to us if we're not familiar with kind of like the debates between Roman Catholic theology of salvation and Protestant theology of salvation. But one of the articulations in Rome is that we are given the Holy Spirit infused with God's grace to such an extent where uh, we are given that to be able to uh, ourselves keep the law. The Spirit infuses us and then we ourselves begin to be able to follow and do good works. And that word infusion was a tricky word. Cranmer preferred, he, he believed with Paul that certainly the Holy Spirit comes in us to perform and do good works. But inspiration, filling of the Holy Spirit was much more in line with this idea that the Spirit didn't empower me in my own efforts to do it. Rather, the Spirit did the work in me. That's the difference between infusion and inspiration. Let's check out another one. Almighty and everlasting God, give unto us the increase of faith, hope, and charity, that we may merit that which thou dost promise, and make us to love that which thou dost command. Almighty and everlasting God, Cranmer rewrites, give us Give unto us the increase of faith, hope, and charity that we may obtain, we may get it, that which thou dost promise. Make us to love that which thou dost command. A simple word change, but it's teaching us the nature of how we talk to God faithfully or full of faith, right? Here's another one. Almighty and most merciful God, of whose gift it cometh, that thy faithful people do unto thee true and laudable service, Grant, we beseech thee, that we may, without offense, run to thy promises through our Lord. Decent prayer made better. Almighty and most merciful God, of whose only gift it cometh. You see, these words only, alone, are very important words to the clarity of the gospel. You know, in Latin, sola, right? We talk about the five solas of the Reformation. But linguistically and Prayer-wise, these words often make the difference of clarifying who does the work 
where, and whether I share in that work or whether it's totally the work of God. Once you put only in front of something, it's very clear that nothing else, this excludes anything else, right? And so what I've found is that in a lot of these prayers in our liturgy, alone, only, are kind of jammed in where there was no original Latin there in order to make this kind of categorical thing really clear. That thy faithful people do unto thee true and laudable service. Grant, we beseech thee, that we may so run to thy heavenly promises. Cranmer was aware that every time we run to God's heavenly promises, chances are there's something that's going to offend God about who we are. <laughs> so he's, he's aware. I, I don't know that I can run unstained and without offense to God's promises. I just need to run there. And I need to run there as a dirty, rotten sinner in need of God's grace. So run to thy heavenly promises that we fail not finally to attain the same. He adds that through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beautiful. Second collect at Evensong. Great prayer. O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto us the same peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts... You can all, now your Cranmer hats are on. You can almost hear what's going to be changed, right? That our hearts being obedient to thy commandment and the fear of our enemies taken away, our time may be peaceable through thy protection by Christ our Lord. What do you think is going to happen? O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto thy servants something a little bit less generic than us. Kramer wants to put us in a position of who are we as we approach this God? Well, we're God's servants. That peace which the world cannot give, that both our hearts, there's the divine passive again, may be set to obey, not even maybe made obedient, but maybe set to obey thy commandments. And also that by thee, we being defended. He's adding a little bit here to make clear that the way we get out of our enemies is through the defense of God. We don't have any sort of aggressive attack plan here. It's all if God hems us in and closes us off, that's how we make it. They pass our time in rest and quietness. And that's where we observe not only was Cranmer doing like theological editing and redacting here, he also made the English, he was a master of this kind of linguistic work. Cranmer was a lousy hymn writer. He was a lousy translator of poems. But he knew how to make the English language really sing in a special way. Pass our time in rest and quietness, which gives peaceableness a little bit more specificity and clarity of what that means. Rest, quietness, through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior. So if there's going to be any talk of meriting, Mariamor, if we're going to talk about that at all, it's going to be the merits of Jesus not ours. Fourth Sunday in Advent. Lord, raise up, we pray thee, thy power, and come with great might, succor us, comfort us, that whereas through our sins we are hindered, thy bountiful grace by your propitiation may speedily deliver us. Lord, raise up, we pray thee, thy power, and come among us, nearness, and with thy great might, succor us, that whereas through our sins and wickedness, Cranmer was fond of what are called doublets or triplets, meaning he wants to sort of use a synonym to help drive something home. A lot. I was reading a prayer book commentary last night that was sort of digging on how much it, it was annoying to have to pray these things, and we could really shorten these prayers if we just took out a bunch of Cranmer's, you know, uh, his his thesaurus stuff where he would do this. But there was a purpose behind it. 
He wanted us to spend a little more time here thinking about these things like, what is sin? Well, it's wickedness. It's wicked deeds. It actually has a, a name and a face. We be sore let, or old English for thwarted and hindered. Thy bountiful grace and mercy through the satisfaction of thy Son, our Lord. So this is an interesting one because there's this doctrine of propitiation out there that, that means that through a, the sacrifice of another, I appease and offer a substitute that deals with the wrath of God for me. Interestingly enough, that's a good doctrine. Protestants love that one. But he wanted to throw a little dig here. And he wanted to say through the satisfaction of thy son, our Lord. Because in his day, the doctrine of satisfaction was used for what humans did to sort of fulfill their half of the salvation bargain. You see, if I sinned, I would go to a priest and confess my sin to the priest. And he'd say, I absolve you, but do these things as satisfaction to fulfill this absolution. So you weren't fully in the clear with God's forgiveness until you satisfied God with those extra things. And look at what Cranmer does here. <laughs> he says, all your satisfaction is from thy son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may that satisfaction speedily deliver us. So again, 100% God, none of us. Lord, we beseech thee, receive the prayers of thy holy heavenly people who follow thee and grant that they perceive what things they ought to do and also have power faithfully to fulfill the same. Wonder what he's going to do. Lord, we beseech thee mercifully too. Okay, he loves throwing in mercy. Love that too. Receive the prayers of thy people which call upon thee. Not about to name myself in a prayer where I need God's help, holy and heavenly. And grant that they may perceive and know. There's a doublet again. Just I don't want to just perceive it. I want to know it deep down in the biblical sense of full knowing what things they ought to do and also have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Just to make clear that this power comes from God's grace and not from something internal in me. So look at how we're being taught to pray in all these ways. Great prayer called the Illumina Prayer. Third collect for Evensong. Illumine, we beg you, Lord, our darkness, and kindly drive away all the snares of the night through Jesus Christ. Good prayer. Lighten our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord. By thy great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of thy only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The twelfth Sunday after Trinity, Almighty and everlasting God, who dost exceed the merits and prayers of thy suppliants. Pour down upon us thy mercy, forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid, and giving unto us that that our prayer dare not presume to ask. Almighty and everlasting God, which are always more ready to hear than... I mean, do you recall this prayer? This was a total invention, this part of the prayer. Which are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. Oh, beautiful. He goes before us, and he's like the one whose ear's already there even before we're saying anything. Praise God. And our wants to give more than we, e we either desire or deserve. Ah, oh, that, that has staying power. Pour down upon us the abundance of thy mercy, etc. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Ready, more ready to hear than we are to pray. It's kind of like that sort of poetic language that Newton used when we heard... Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more, right? Okay, 
when he got to first Sunday in Lent, okay? So we're entering in Lent here. This was the prayer that the church prayed. God, who didst purify thy church by the yearly observance of Lent, may we strive toward abstinence and good works. Okay, what do you think Cranmer is going to do with that one? Peace out, Girl Scouts. Um, he's not going to even try to edit that one. He's going to write his own. Listen to this. Listen to where the emphasis falls now. Not on us, not on our fasting. O Lord, which for our sake did fast 40 days and 40 nights, give us grace to use such abstinence that our flesh being subdued to the Spirit, we may ever obey thy godly motions. Godly motions meaning your movements in us. If our obedience coming, it's going to be you doing it. Our godly motions in righteousness and true holiness to the honor, to thy honor and glory, which liveth and reigneth with thee, etc., etc. Isn't that beautiful? We actually don't use that anymore because later prayer books cut it out. One more, and then uh, entertain some questions. We've got lots of time. First Sunday after Trinity, God, the strength of all them that hope in thee, mercifully accept our prayers, and because the weakness of our mortal nature can do nothing without thee, grant us the help of thy grace, that in keeping thy commandments, we may please thee both in will and deed. Uh-oh. Okay. God, the strength of all them that trust in thee. I was reading about this because hope is a good word. I think what's going on here is Cranmer wanted to concretize and make specific and make sure that there was no wiggle room in the word hope. Because hope could be kind of like, well, I hope this happens. I hope God comes to my aid. No, trust. I trust that God's coming to my aid. Mercifully accept our prayers. And because of the weakness of our mortal nature, because the weakness of our mortal nature can do, he wanted to make really clear, no good thing without thee. The weakness of my mortal nature can do a lot of bad things, <laughs> but no good thing, anything that's good, is not going to come without thee. Grant us the help of thy grace, etc., etc. Ah, we'll stop there for now. Um, I want to ask a question. And the question is, as you see the way the archbishop is teaching us to pray, what are you learning? Or what instead of me just giving you application, what are you thinking about, oh, how does this change my prayer life? Or how might I pray as a result of this differently? Go ahead. Or talk about any sort of reflections on this that mean something to your spirituality and the way you talk to God. She's saying, approach God with absolute total dependence. I bring nothing. Yep, I bring nothing to the table. I, I think God really loves that kind of praying. I know God really loves that kind of praying. I mean, Jesus said, only the sick need a physician. So coming to God, sick. Coming to God saying, Lord, I need you. It's so funny. Do you remember the, the Pharisee and the publican? Jesus contrasting. And who did he say was the better prayer? The guy who simply said, have mercy on me, I need you. <laughs> Not the eloquent prayer of the religious guy that actually probably sounded a little bit more like a collect. <laughs> you know, it was just the guy who was going, I, I don't even know what to say, God. I just, I just know I need you. And Jesus was like, I can, I can do that. I can receive that prayer because that's right where I want it. How else are we learning to pray? What else, what else are you learning or receiving right now? It's very similar to what Melinda said, but just 
Yeah. Being really clear of who I am and who God is when I come to prayer. There's always kind of a moment of... um, Sometimes when I come to prayer, I'm ready to confess everything and grovel. But other times, I feel like I've had a pretty good week. And when I come to God, I come with... Spirituality's been pretty good, God. I've had a five for five with my devotionals or whatever. Haven't yelled at my kids this week or didn't blow it in X, Y, and Z category. And so here I am, Lord. And that's actually the moment where we need to understand who we are a little bit better, which is someone just as in need in that moment. And so maybe, maybe the first prayers out of the gate are precisely, God, I'm tempted right now to come in feeling pretty good about myself, feeling like B plus, A minus, maybe even A plus on the spirituality report card today. Forgive me. Help me to come to you in total dependence. Because you notice how the less dependent we are, the more it really does color our prayers. You know, it really changes the way we pray. What else? Bold petitions. Yeah. You know, the mark of dependence is asking for big things. You know, if you think about that, big audacious prayers say, I can't do that one. That's got to be all you. You know, it, it might just be, that's a really good point. It might just be that it's the small prayers that betray that I kind of have a stake in this. And it's the big prayers that obviously put me in that identity and that position of total need. I love that. The bold, big prayers. God, do something huge right now. I love that. Yeah. Mm hmm. Indeed. He's approachable with the big things. Hebrews, come boldly. Do you, rec- do you know that that's actually something that Cranmer did with the liturgy too? Right before we pray the Lord's Prayer, he added this one word We come boldly saying, Our Father who art in heaven. Why? Because he got Hebrews. He's like, Hey, man. Once I got Jesus all over me, I can go anywhere. I can go right up to the Father and ask for whatever I need. I've got all the righteousness I need. I've got everything I need. I can go right there and ask for anything. And he will give it to me in Jesus' name. You know, That's the beauty of the freedom of the gospel. Is that we can walk into that face-melting Indiana Jones scene, Holy of Holies, that should obliterate us and clothed in the total righteousness of Jesus, can walk right in and talk intimately to the Father. What a beautiful reality that we can ask for bold things and ask boldly. What else? Thankfulness and gratefulness. Yeah. That makes sense of Paul's admonitions constantly when he's talking about prayer. I was just reading, we pray before the services start. We gather the ushers and uh, the welcome team and the musicians, and we have a time of prayer. And I was reading these, those two endings of his epistles where Paul ends First Thessalonians and then he ends um, Philippians. And they're very similar, but he's always parenting. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And give thanks to the Lord. Pray without ceasing and give thanks. They're always paired together. And why is that? That actually makes a connection here. Why is thanksgiving a most appropriate prayer to pray to God? Because it puts one in the position of not having done a thing, but having received everything. I've heard a a worship professor at Southern Seminary who died a while back has this famous statement that he said, and 
first didn't like it, and then I really liked it. His, his, his line was, the mature Christian is one who is easily blessed. Now, when I think of that, I think of those kind of cheesy Christians that are like, oh, I'm just blessed everywhere. You know, like, thank, oh, I received that blessing. You know, like everywhere they go, they're just sort of happy all the time. And like, I can't do that. I'm too much of a moody. I slide toward Enneagram 4. I'm a 3, but I've got the 4 wing going on. So I like to be moody and all that stuff, right? But actually, no. Because the Christian is someone who's being made back into what was taking place in the garden. And what was taking place in the garden? Total dependence. Not living by bread alone, but by every word that came from the mouth of God, you know? Total dependence. And thankfulness puts me in that position of being easily blessed because I'm looking around me and I don't have to strain to find things where God has given me a gift. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows, James 1 says. Which means that anything good in your life, you can actually interpret, according to the Bible, as God coming directly to you and giving you something in particular. You and God. And if you start to count your many blessings and name them one by one, chances are you're going to start perceiving your whole life as one big fat gift. And maybe even, and this is a hard but good word, maybe even suffering in this light takes on a different hue too. Not ready to be received if you're in the moment of suffering right now, but oftentimes in hindsight, we can go, it's strange, but that was a good gift of the Lord. You know, it's weird, but that was God blessing me, not cursing me. And that was God with me, not absent from me, right? And so the mature Christian is one who perceives all of life as a gift, which is actually the creature that you and I, by the power of the gospel, are being made into constantly, is people who are receivers. That's why Luther was fond of using the Christian life phrase, vita passiva, or the passive life, meaning more accurately the receptive life, meaning that my whole life is kind of in receiving mode. Wide receiver, getting ready to catch a ball of God's grace everywhere I go. My hands are always up. And every time I step out of my door, there's another blessing. There's another gift to open up. You know, even good works, this is an interesting idea. Because when Paul uses the language of good works, which God has prepared for you to do, it's as though he's saying even your good works, your good deeds, are God's gifts to you. So it's kind of like, I come out of my house so grateful for who Jesus is and what he's done, that when I open my door and look at my neighborhood and my city, my job, my street, my school, wherever I am, all I see are these little gifts, these little packages for me to go open up. Here, let me buy you lunch today, homeless man. Here, son, let's spend some quality time together. That's a gift for me to open up. And suddenly even good works are things to be received, not done. That's the the receptive life that comes when Ah, when we're enamored and shaped by this good news of 100% God and no percent us. And it starts to affect the way you pray. You know, the, the Christians that I admire as having the strongest faith I know are the ones who are constantly sort of praying in joy. And what's funny enough is their circumstances don't really matter. They're often afflicted by a bunch of things, but they're filled with joy. Why? Because somehow they found, and their eyes have been opened to, the gifts of God that are coming at them from all directions. And once you perceive all these things as gifts, you can't help but overflow in praise and thanksgiving. That's the gifted life 
that you find locked into these collects, don't you? They're pretty beautiful in the way that they kind of give that to us. And I honestly, I say that to you with myself in mind going, I'm not, I'm not grateful enough, you know? And so a great prayer to come out of this day, to use a divine passive as you walk out of here is, God, make me receptive to your gifts. Give me ears to hear your gifts. Give me eyes to see your gifts. Make me the kind of person that finds your gifts everywhere because they are, we're just not seeing them. Give me eyes to see. And those are the eyes of faith. Those are the eyes of faith that God gives, you know, that only come through this repeated act of confession and repentance. It's funny, it's our arrogance and it's our flesh that would blind us to all the gifts that are coming to us from God. Man, I didn't even know I was going to get there, but that's so good. That's really good. What other thoughts are stirring or percolating in your minds and hearts right now? Yes, sir. I love that. That's good. We need a DTR with God. And we need a kind of DTR that says with John the Baptist, you must increase and I must decrease. That says with Paul, for I, Zach Hicks, actually have been crucified with Christ. I died on the cross. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Like, if that's not a categorical distinction, I don't know what is. Zach died. Zach died. It's Christ who lives within me. And once I define that relationship, everything else is kind of set in order, isn't it? You know, and that leads someone like Paul, who really grasps that not I, but Christ in this to be able to say, I know what it's like to be content in all circumstances. I could be rich, poor. I could be in chains or wherever. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because not I, but Christ who lives within me and everything's a gift. I have nothing to lose because I've gained it all. I could even lose my life, but I would not lose my soul. And I would get this body back in return. I lose nothing right now. That's so funny because uh, a lot of fear, American fear of COVID has to do with this loss of life, you know? And that's, of course, there's great fear in dying, but we shouldn't fear death because death has lost its sting. And therefore, uh, we can be comfortable facing the pain and the, the mourning of death, knowing that it can't really touch me. You know, it's been declawed. All it can do is gently sort of paw me into eternity. Death as cat metaphor. Any other good words from you all? Hey, that was great. Let's all pray this uh, final prayer together now as we go about our week of engaging the scriptures and hearing God's word there and clinging to him desperately. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, which has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us that we may in such wise hear them 
read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.